Hello and welcome to That Science, the podcast exploring the meaning of science today. This is What's Science and I'm Amelia Doran, your host. This episode we're talking about religion and its influence on science. Last time we discussed how alchemy began as a combination of religion, astronomy and experimentation, but pure science was achieved by removing these influences. However, as we've discussed in the context of objectivity, it's hard to remove societal influences like religion from science. Today we're going to look at how religion and science interact and how religion drove some scientific progress. Our guest is fellow science and health communications student Lucinda Shurifs, and we'll also briefly hear from future guest Hafsa Mohammed. Here's our thoughts. Thank you so much for joining us, Lucinda. Thanks for having me. So do you want to start off by just uh, introducing yourself a bit and what you've studied? Yeah, so um, hi, I'm Lucinda. I am currently doing my master's degree in science and health communication with the lovely Amelia. We're in the same class. But for my undergrad, I did it back in New Zealand, hence the accent. I studied astrophysics as my major, and then I minored in classics, more like Latin and Roman history, but a little bit of Greek as well. And was there anything specific in astrophysics or just I basically researched variable stars, so some stars expand and contract periodically due to fluctuations in temperature or fusion rates in their core, and I basically studied those fluctuations and looked at what was causing them. That's pretty cool. Very very interesting. Amazing. And the other sort of intro bit is, because we're talking about religion, do you want to talk a little bit about what your religious background is? Yeah, sure. You know, in my advanced age of 23, I am pretty spiritually dry at this point. There's not a lot going on. Uh, Yeah, just agnostic atheist. But I grew up Christian, like a lot of people in Western countries. I went to a religious school, Christian school, hence the speaking Latin thing. But no, I was never that involved with the church. I just know a couple of obscure hymns and like random Bible verses are implanted in my brain for all time, I think. But um, yeah. That's about it. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) So for me, I was raised Roman Catholic. My Northern Irish heritage kind of made me quite religious in my upbringing. And I have a very complicated relationship with it now. I think part of me really loves the stability and some of the kind of overall, you know, be a good person. But also things like gay rights, abortion are not things that I particularly agree with the church on but I think I was lucky in my family that my family very much takes the good and also relies on being good people in general I think. It's Um, kind of just how it should be really I think. uh, But yeah that's us and I guess that helps us talk about religion a bit more a bit more context. So I asked you to read a couple articles Um, and the first one was this Whitehead article from 1925, which mostly I just wanted us to read because I thought he wrote. He wrote so well, it was so beautifully. So interesting. I reread it this morning over my morning coffee and my bagel. I was. I, there were so great. many quotes that I pulled. Yeah. And I was like, that's just a really lovely way to think about it. I know. Um, I really enjoyed his perspectives on, well, just the general ever-changing nature of both subjects experiences whatever we want to call them and seeing how they've sort of grown in some ways opposite directions but in other ways in a convergent way so i really liked his definition of religion so i was going to read that for the listeners so he says religion is the vision of something which stands beyond behind and within the passing flux of immediate things something which is real and yet waiting to be realized something which is a remote possibility and yet the greatest of present facts Something which gives meaning to all that passes and yet eludes apprehension. Something whose possession is the final good and yet is beyond all reach. Something which is the ultimate ideal and the hopeless quest. Awesome. It speaks for itself. I mean, that's a small taste of his writing style, which is just 
really beautiful. I thought the way he talks about it. So that's how he ends up. He finishes the whole article by defining religion. What I found interesting was because Einstein had recently published his theory of relativity, I think, when this article was published, because it was published in the 1920s. Um, So that was a hot topic, as it still is today. I don't know if the listeners are familiar with the theory of relativity. Um, Give us a little blurb. Okay, sure. So it basically (laughs) describes how gravity works on the large scale. Large scales, gravity only works on the large scale, really. But um, it, the theory up until then was Newton's laws of gravitation, which work when we're looking at things like solar systems and stars. But when we want to look at things that are a bit bigger, like, you know, galaxies or galactic groups, we have to use Einstein's laws because Newton's laws simply don't work on the large scale. And there are certain anomalies or gravitational fluctuations which can't be explained by them alone. Things such as the orbit of Mercury around the sun can get a little like wacky sometimes. And that's only explained by Einstein's laws of relativity. Anyway, so that's a very long way of saying that when Einstein published his paper, there wasn't a huge anti-Einstein sort of rhetoric out there. It was more, we saw a evolution of the scientific fact using new knowledge, and we didn't completely abandon Newton's laws. You probably still all learned them in high school, but we just recontextualized them, and we used them in a different way, and we just say they're not quite as accurate as they could be. And I think that's a really important part of science is being able to admit when we're not entirely right or even when we're entirely wrong. Being able to sometimes in some cases just throw out theories entirely for more accurate ones or ones that can better explain the world around us. Yeah it's something that he goes into quite a lot of detail about how science I guess his perspective in the 1920s was that science was on an up and religion was on a down. Yeah. <laughs> you can kind of follow, but he was saying science's benefit is, yeah, when you get new information, you don't say everything is wrong, we have to yeah. abandon this whole science thing and start again. You use it to improve your theories, change your theories, until they feel more representative of the world around you. Whereas religion, I think his perspective was that religion was very much stuck in a, it has to be right, so we yeah. have to reject anything that doesn't Like, conform. if we're not right about everything, we're wrong about everything, kind of. Like, yeah. there's no... There's not a lot of black and white. Well, some people don't allow for a lot of black and white, which is really a shame because the complexity is in the grey and there's so much fun stuff in science. So there's another quote that I thought he put it really nicely. He said, A clash between the two on points of detail where they overlap should not lead us hastily to abandon doctrines for which we have solid evidence. So I think he was saying basically there shouldn't be anything where you just throw out the whole book and start again. There's always use in whatever's come before and it's about how we integrate those things from before into our current knowledge. Uh, There's one, it's not mentioned in the paper, but just you saying that made me really think about it. One of the most famous experiments in modern, I suppose it's particle physics, is the Cavendish experiment, which was designed to measure something that is not real. They called it the luminiferous ether. The 19th century astronomers and physicists believed was the medium through which light propagated. Obviously, now we know that light propagates through a vacuum. It exists in quantized particles called photons. But at the time, because they knew light to be a wave, they presumed there was some kind of ethereal substance in space that we moved through, like space wasn't empty. Does that make sense? Like Like a sort of watery, that light was propagating through. And so they devised this experiment, the Cavendish experiment, to measure the motion of the luminiferous. Obviously, since there was nothing to measure, they didn't find anything. But they did create, I believe, the most accurate scale of all time. And they essentially measured the gravitational constant instead to a very accurate degree, which in Newton's laws is big G. What I'm saying is even 
experiments that at first seem kind of useless, we end up measuring new things, we end up discovering new things. And again, we're not throwing out the whole book. Yeah, I think some scientists move towards saying, oh, you know, they're mutually exclusive. You can't believe Mm. all of science and also believe religion. And I don't know, for me, I think it's much more nuanced than that. I see science as true and objective and I can see that. But I also think that religion sits in a very different world. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the problem comes when people try and like conflate the two because, I mean, it's comparing apples to oranges. They are two different parts of the human experience and one is not more important than the other. And when people say like religion isn't true, I always find that a really nonsensical thing to say because it's a aspect of humanity which affects literally billions of people worldwide currently and has completely shaped world history. So it's as true as anything, really. It's like, how could it not be? One of the examples that Whitehead brings up, which really made me giggle, was he talks about this guy Cosmas in 535 CE, who basically uses the Bible to infer that the world is a flat parallelogram. It's so much more creative than a flat pancake. I like a parallelogram. That's fun. What a great shape. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The corners of the world. I know. The four corners of the world. (gasps) Maybe that's where it came from. (laughs) Moment of realisation. But I think it's really funny that, I don't know, I see that as such an overreach of religion. I think knowing what size the world is from a book that's supposed to teach you about morals and values just feels a bit... Semi-irrelevant. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. If your morals come from... I mean, that's where you're getting your morals from. If you're a good person because you think the world's a parallelogram, then what what am I to say? It's one of the best moments of my educational career, I think. But in, like, we did religious studies in school. Okay, (laughs) wonderful. In year eight for me, which was when I had to do all my big exams moving from a prep school to a senior school, in four different exams I got to write basically the same essay because the same question came up and it was always the teachings of Jesus and how they could be applied beyond just Christianity like whether they should be followed more generally oh, that's interesting and I remember every time writing essentially if you follow the big ones which are just be a decent human yeah. being don't fundamentally don't suck like don't I, kill people like come I on think guys that, that is what speaks to me about religion like yeah. that is the values that you're coming from but I don't think that means you have to reject every single bit of science or oh, 100% no like especially Roman Catholics are supposed to be the ones that take every single word of the bible literally and my experience of religion has definitely not been that I think that is the issue if you take every single word of the bible literally that's when you can't then accept science you have to choose between them and that doesn't reflect my experience of religion yeah or religion can be a huge part of one facet of your life and that doesn't need to completely negate other facets of your life you can you know get a lot of lessons out of the bible or the quran or the torah whatever you're reading uh you can appreciate the art and the architecture and the stained glass windows that's that's me i love that and you can also you know love reading charles darwin's theory of evolution yeah they don't need to be diametrically opposed to one another or religious people rather than religion as a whole like the religious individual does not need to be diametrically opposed to like scientific theory and scientific thought that's just silly I think that's right and that's kind of what we want to talk about today so we're going to move on a little bit towards looking at how religion can inspire science and that's why we have you here today because anyone that's met Lucinda knows that she's a bit of a space nerd. I am a big space nerd. Which is I am their space nerd. <laughs> really cool. The first time we talked about it I said I think space is really cool but I also don't understand it and I wish I understand it. To and the I was level. like would you like to? <laughs> <laughs> Basically. So you this will. is what we're doing now. Yeah. Um, So we're specifically going to talk about the 
golden age of Islam and uh, the Islamic scholars' contributions to astronomy because they did a lot. Spoiler alert. Yeah, I basically, my degree would be very different if the golden age of Islam hadn't happened. Optics wouldn't exist. Algebra wouldn't exist. And um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with algebra. It's this kind of this little small thing in math that not a lot of people know about. Yeah, the Arabic numbering system, the concept of zero, and just general astronomy. Like, it's known for being massive boom in astronomical and scientific progress. Just a great time to be a nerd, really. <laughs> um, I can try and explain when it was as well, because I'm being pretty vague here. It was time period between the 8th and the 13th, 14th centuries in the Abbasid, Fatimid Caliphates. So North Africa, Arabian Peninsula, and then Caspian Sea, Black Sea kind of area of huge socioeconomic wealth. Obviously, a lot of these golden ages are typically golden, literally. And also, again, a boom in scientific, mathematical, as well as like poetic, artistic, cultural greatness, really. It's a pretty cool time to be alive. Yeah, I think so. So we're going to talk a bit about astronomy, but I guess we should start by looking at why astronomy in particular was important in Islam. So we're going to throw over to our guest, other guest, Hafsa. So thank you for agreeing to chat to us, Hafsa. No worries. Thank you for having me. So Lucinda and I are going to chat a bit more about the golden age of Islam, but I thought it would be really interesting, first of all, to get your opinion on science and religion, specifically from a Muslim point of view. Okay, so definitely I think as a Muslim and following the teachings of the Qur'an, within the Qur'an the importance of seeking knowledge and going out into the world and trying to kind of better your understanding of the universe and the world is something that's really kind of emphasised. And the teachings of the Prophet as well, that is one key factor I think that's definitely emphasised. So, you know, we're really encouraged to observe and study aspects of the universe. Uh, that's definitely one of the reasons I think I love studying science as well. It's nothing that like takes me away from religion. It just kind of increases my faith in that way because I feel like they go hand in hand. And this comes through in a lot of things like medicine, like nature and astronomy as well, definitely. It's like one of the key branches. And I think that's why, you know, following the birth of the prophet and during that time period, during the revelation of the Holy Quran, there was that great period of advancement in all of these fields yeah i think astronomy particularly i think is quite connected to i mean how a lot of mosques would have had observatories sort of incorporated into them and stuff so do you want to talk a little bit about the importance of of astronomy in particular yeah definitely so you know the arabs at the time they were already i'd say quite like skilled at navigating by the stars I mean when you think about it like living in these vast deserts and with like a lifestyle that would probably require them to move from one place to another at night they would definitely have to have that understanding already of kind of using the stars as like a map to guide them but specifically um, to do with Islam when the kind of Qibla was introduced so I'll just say that what that is basically so um, as Muslims we all have to pray to towards a specific direction and this is the Garba which is in within within Mecca which is that city and like everyone has to pray in that direction nowadays I take it for granted I always have a compass and I have an app on my phone so I will just take that out in the corridors between lessons if I need to pray and I can just easily f- locate the, the Qibla and then pray in that direction but obviously before all these apps and stuff like that they would have used astronomy I guess to get this really exact kind of um, direction because that is one of the key kind of things that you have to work out before you pray so like 
are saying that when they were building all these mosques all around the world, they would have to work out the Qibla direction. So yeah, the astronomy there was a, was a really important thing to consider for sure. One, I think, key aspect of astronomy that ties into Islam as well is the calendar as a whole. So now as I'm talking to you, we're approaching Ramadan, which is going to be starting in a few days, and we're going to be outside in the garden looking for the new crescent. So that is the phase of the moon that will signify the start of the month. And then at the end of the month, you look for the new moon and then the new crescent, which is the start of the next month. And this basically is because, you know, we go by the lunar calendar um, and religious celebrations like Eid and, you know, the holy month of Ramadan is all kind of based on this lunar calendar. So that is still like a very key aspect like we need to understand what's going on in the sky above us to base our whole kind of a timetable on that as well. Nowadays most of it's done by local mosques but I really like going out into the garden and see if I can spy it as well, work out if the next day is going to be Eid or not. So then do you also get variability where some people might celebrate Eid on a slightly different day to other people depending on where you are? Yeah definitely so um, I'm Pakistani so half my family from my mum's side actually live in Pakistan and it's always kind of funny because of where they are in the world they always celebrate it the day after us we call them we're like are you celebrating then no like we're still fasting because we don't have our Eid yet so there's that discrepancy because of where we are on the planet and they haven't actually spotted the moon then we've already seen the moon in our sky so you know we get to celebrate and they don't but yeah there is that little discrepancy there amazing well thank you so much for your wonderful insight so I have one example of uh, a scholar who did something pretty cool with astronomy based on religion I thought we could start there and then you could bring in some other examples, maybe. I wonder so, if I know who it is. <laughs> Al Biruni? Biruni? B-I-R-U-N-I. Carry on, carry on. So basically, he was able to calculate the circumference of the globe to within 200 miles of what we now know the value to be. Oh, wow. So How did he do so? Less than 1%. So I'm going to botch the maths very much and I'll pop the article in the show notes that I read. So I can probably correct the method um, later. <laughs> he climbed up a mountain mm-hmm. and was looking over a flat horizon. And then what he could do was calculate his height on top of the mount- mountain and then use like a right angle triangle with the radius of the globe by looking at the horizon and calculating how far away the horizon was. Oh, I see. Using angles. So I suppose I'm trying to picture the triangle in my head right now. He would probably have to use two right angle triangles yeah. adjacent to one another. But that's incredible. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, so he was uh, kind of inspired, I guess. The religious aspect mm. there is twofold. First of all, apparently knowing the the circumference of the globe was really useful in terms of knowing how far away you had to be before Mecca started being closer the other direction. Oh, yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you went the whole way around the world, yeah, yeah, yeah. then you needed to start you're like, do I need Being to like, do a 180 direction. and turn around? Yeah. yeah. So partially it was that and partially it was just that the caliphate was like, how big is my kingdom? <laughs> Let me know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so that were kind of the two halves of it. But yeah, so we think it's within 200 miles. There is a bit of criticism in the fact that his perception of where the horizon was might not have been super accurate because of the refraction. Yeah. And then also he was using cubits, which are a measurement but they want a standardized measurement at that point so it's really the rate of conversion that makes it that accurate but yeah. regardless of that it's still it's pretty very impressive. impressive yeah i was about to add another thing i forgot that also was invented during the golden age of islam was spherical trigonometry which is basically triangles and spheres and how they interact so i imagine that would have been kind of helpful with uh figuring out the shape of a sphere using triangles yeah. so yeah wow <laughs> who would have guessed that 
But um, thank you. That's my one example. Do you have any other? I was, I'm just going to say the most famous one is Ibadah Heisen. He's a absolute legend. He was the, the golden boy of the golden age, if you will. He invented kind of the first camera, you know, a thousand years before the Lumiere brothers. This is one of my favorite little experiments because back in the day, up until Ibn al-Hayton, people believed that we saw things because light was shining out of our eyes, reflecting on the object and coming back to us like we were torches almost. Obviously, that sounds ridiculous to a modern audience because we all know that light comes into the eyes, you know, through the cornea, down the optic nerve into the brain. But again, like if you've got absolutely no experience in optics and, you know, anatomy and biology, like that's not necessarily an intuitive thought. It is now because it was discovered by this guy. So he proved this by setting up a tent in the desert at high noon and poking a hole in the exterior canvas. And he was like standing inside and he made his friend stand outside and, you know, wave or something like that. And because there was that tiny little pinhole in an otherwise entirely dark tent, the light came in through the pinhole and was concentrated and then shone onto the back wall. And that's similar to how light enters the eye, goes through the small opening of the pupil and then it shines onto the optic nerve at the back and what he got was a very blurry upside down and kind of hazy image but it was an image of his friend outside waving but yeah the first rudimentary camera and also proving how the human eye works all in one what a slay I know right just, on, a, moment. just on as casual as it was on an afternoon I love that love yeah it. so it's really interesting especially because I don't know I see the perception of religion and science, I guess we, because we're in the Western world, have the framing very much of religion versus Christianity, basically. And I think Islam is a really interesting example where actually there was so much scientific progress through a very religious society because of a religious society it's not just that it happened to be a society where they were religious because everyone was religious back in the day we all kind of know that but the reason the scientific advancement was so great was because of their religion not coincidentally which i think is the most interesting thing i think especially in this topic (laughs) absolutely i think the importance of scientific progress was really appreciated which is not something that you really think of in a Christian society, I think. Yeah, I mean, well, for example, while the Golden Age of Islam was happening, it was the literal Dark Ages in Western Europe, which, you know, weren't as boring as everyone makes it sound, but they were comparatively pretty boring compared to the invention of the camera and people climbing mountains and figuring out the size of the earth. Like, (laughs) you know, they all had the plague back there. So the lack of scientific progression in Europe was directly as a result of extreme Christianity and I think that's a really interesting sort of contrast so you can kind of see the bad and the good that comes out of where science and religion meet. And I think that takes us on nicely to our final thing that I wanted us to talk about. I know this has been a very whistle-stop tour of religion and science. I'm sure we could do a hundred episodes on it. But I definitely think about religion in our studies of science communication in terms of how do you negotiate when religion is, is standing in the way of being able to communicate effectively with someone. I think some people might approach it as we need to just get rid of it. Like religion can't come in. But I think personally there's got to be a way that you can appreciate its role that's a really interesting question because i i can be a little blunt sometimes so i need to like learn how to step back and look at myself when it comes to those kinds of things because i am the first person to be like religion should not be in the science classroom kind of thing and when we're in biology we're not talking about the bible I appreciate its role for all the 
incredible things that you know religious people have done throughout history and it's massive driving force on sort of the wheel of humanity really i absolutely appreciate that and i appreciate all the people who act with so much love that comes from a place of religion and you know curiosity that comes from a place of religion and i think that science doesn't need to justify itself within a religious context science can just be science and it can still be cool and interesting and you can still go out and talk about things that you love and things that you're interested in to people of any faith and and if you're doing it in good faith, then I don't think you necessarily need to like change what you're saying. Like I've been saying, like they don't need to be diametrically opposed, but they can be different and that's fine. Mm. Like they're different things and they're different aspects of the human experience. I think, yeah, definitely that stubbornness you get sometimes. So the other article that I sent you to read mm. is one that we've done in our course before and it's by two guys, Nisbet and Mooney, and they talk about framing science. And so you have some things like, so you've got from religious people who kind of say I full stop blank no science yeah I believe the bible but you also have from scientists a very sort of stubborn point blank well the bible is wrong and that's that's the only communication that they yeah. decide to do and I think what I really loved about Nisbet Amini's thoughts was that actually if you can engage with religion and instead of saying you're stupid because you believe in the bible so stop that and believe in science instead oh, yeah, no, absolutely not if you can find ways to sort of negotiate that i think the example that struck me was they talk about stem cell research mm. which is something that's quite or was quite contentious when they were writing i think mm. and actually saying okay well instead of balancing like science and medical progress versus what you believe about human life why don't we look at it as those stem cells could alleviate the suffering of hundreds of thousands of people the research that goes on so instead of taking it outside of a religious context and saying we're going to ignore that you can put it in and say okay well our faith teaches us that we should be helping others and alleviating yeah. suffering really and if we can point. do that yeah. in a in a way using science like surely we should do that yeah absolutely that's a, that's a very good point like yeah i think i mean i was talking to someone recently who basically the way that they presented science was that anyone science related wouldn't be religious that was their assumption no like that's clearly not true like yeah i think <laughs> I don't want to say naive, but it was yeah. quite a simplistic, maybe like that black and white black and approach. White. Yeah, very black and white. And I think being able to engage mm. religion will be difficult. And, you know, it's something that as science communication students, we're probably going to have to come up against yeah. reasonably often, especially when we're looking at big scientific ethical questions. Yeah. But I think just dismissing it as, well, that's just going to be religion and we can't do anything about that. I don't think that's productive or helpful yeah because we still you know the majority of the world is still religious and obviously if we want to like go out there and talk to the public then we need to you know engage with them in their own way and like do so in a respectful manner yeah i think i mean the more we go through the course the more i know that i want to move towards some form of science education science outreach where it's taking science to meet people wherever they are as opposed to expecting them to come to you but mm. i think also that has to include taking science to the place that's most helpful for them to engage with it and if yeah. that's looking at it within a religious view I think that's still really beneficial yeah I think like when you sent me this podcast idea I remember this really interesting quote by Carl Sagan I think it is um and it basically sums up my thoughts on 
like how science and religion can intersect or areas where they shouldn't intersect and how what their relationship can be because Carl Sagan he's he was an atheist like me but he again like me had a real sort of appreciation for religious history the religious world the tenets of a lot of religions and so he was also very critical of religion being used in scientific contexts or science being used in religious contexts he thought that the two of them they both had their very important spheres of influence but they didn't need to be each other's sphere of influence if that makes sense they don't need to like I said, justify themselves using one another. And what this isn't going to be a direct quote because I can't remember the quote, quite frankly. I just remember the vibe of it. But he said, if people describe God as the creator of the universe, and you'll be like, okay, well, science says that the Big Bang created the universe, then it's, okay, God created the Big Bang. And then if we find out how the Big Bang started, then it's, we're going to keep pushing it and pushing it back. And that's not fair on religion because religion still has an important place in society and it doesn't need to just be the gaps that science doesn't fill. It can be its own thing. And yeah, I just think that it does a disservice to an incredibly complex, incredibly beautiful part of the human experience by just making it, okay, God and religion is just the things that science can't explain because science whole thing is that we want to try and explain as much as we can. And I think that's why a lot of people think that they oppose each other so much because science is out to explain the world and everything around us. And religion wants to do that too in its own way. And I think they can both exist but I don't think they need to try and be the same thing because that just makes each of them less special yeah I think it comes back to that original definition that I read from Whitehead that sort Mm, of absolutely there's something very kind of spiritual and very I I think it's one of the defining parts of human is that sort of needing to believe yeah and that's something that's that we get from religion and I don't think as you say I don't think there's a need to sort of replace that completely with science I think maybe the roles of them change Mm. the further we get through but I I don't think they're yeah I don't think they're mutually exclusive things I don't think they're things that need to combat or replace each other no absolutely not yeah like I think yeah the way he quote basically sums up my jumbled thoughts pretty well that like it's science is its own thing which is also a beautiful experience and religion is its own thing it's also a beautiful experience it's more about the human experience and finding a reason to live or how to justify death or how to cope with the seeming cruelty of the entire world that was an emo quote but (laughs) like it's it has such an important role and I think that trying to reduce it down to just how to explain how the universe works, blah, 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 like that. I think that kind of oversimplifies what is quite a metaphysical and complex subject or the most metaphysical complex subject there is. It takes away a lot of the, the gravitas that it has. Yeah. Okay, fab. Super interesting. Thank you so much to Lucinda and Hassa for that very insightful discussion. As always, you can check the show notes to get some starting points on the topics we've discussed in today's show. I would particularly recommend Horizons by James Poskett, which discusses Islamic scholars, but also more broadly explores how the Western narrative of history of science is not the whole truth. I'm only about halfway through, but loving it so far. If you haven't already, please do give us a follow over on Instagram at That Science Pod for updates and behind the scenes insights. And tune in next week for Susan's next episode of Is That Science? Thanks for listening.